Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for Monday, March 22nd, 2021. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Well, Joe, we're going to go ahead and tackle some hard-hitting topics of the day. We are going to evaluate information, whether it comes from the left, whether it comes from the right, whether it comes from an academic paper, or whether it comes from an unverified account on Twitter. We're going to do our best to filter this through the lens of good faith discussion, taking ideas at face value and not... Uh, assuming ulterior motives or incompetence on the part of the issuers of that information. This is all basically just our main strategy that we attempt to keep ourselves and our valued listeners adequately informed. You know, it kind of feels like that's an end. Do I have to say my bit? Um, um I, I don't think, Joe, I, I wasn't going to say this, but like, we cannot proceed until the words ivory tower exit your lips it's, ah. it's, it's, it's an obligation <laughs> well uh, i'm just we're we're gonna go into 40 minutes of silence now um, so it's like all right this is a very specific reference there's a kid's show i watched called kablam and the conceit of this show was that the hosts of the show were in a comic book and their job was to turn the pages to the next sketch it was like a, a sketch show for kids and it was animated and then one episode they're just like what if we don't turn the last page and the show will never end and mm-hmm. so they like they like try to experiment with this fourth wall breaking avant-garde. It's a good episode. It's a good show. That's what we're going to do. We're going to push the boundaries of the technical limitations of adequately informed. That's what we're here to do today to answer your question. Okay. <laughs> um <laughs> Well, since we've drawn this out, I mean, we we try to be in good faith. We realize that our point of views are not the only ones that matter. There's different ways that you can look at things without, you know, coming to the same conclusions and that they're all in good faith. We're not on the ivory tower. Kablam. So, hey, Evan. Yeah, Joe. What do you want to talk about? Well, before we get into what I really want to talk about, we do want to acknowledge the big news of the week and that is the horrific mass murder that occurred in georgia a man went to several massage parlors and murdered eight people we don't have a whole segment for you we don't have any hot takes it was an abject tragedy and uh we feel deeply sad about those events yeah yeah like evan said no real real takes here other than this is this is a tragedy and it's bad Yes, so I want to make sure that we're able to talk about something a little bit lighter. It's been a bit of a a dark week in many respects, not to make light of anything, but I want to talk about reality TV. Ooh. So, yeah, a lot of people don't realize this, but I've been taken with the show Survivor. Uh, The wife and I have been watching a ton of Survivor while things are still shut down. Um, there's a massive backlog of content to get through. We are uh, the only Paramount Plus subscribers. We are the two right now because mm-hmm. we need the Survivor Library, the Survivory, if you will. And <laughs> <laughs> and so it's it's been very fascinating to me. Um, I'm starting to develop this theory that everybody, or at least most people, have a reality genre 
that kind of speaks to them. You just got to find it. And I'm, I'm learning more and more that mine is these sort of elimination-based social competition shows. So I've also started watching Big Brother, and I'm working through season one of Big Brother right now. And it's interesting to compare kind of the genesis of the early days of these shows because reality TV didn't really know what it wanted to be yet, at least not this genre with shows like Survivor and Big Brother. There was part of it that was a competition where people had to get voted out, but then there was another part that was focused on almost a social experiment, sort of what happens when we put people from different walks of life into a confined space in adverse conditions and subject them to all of these external stressors. And... Those are two very different components, it turns out. Basically, one is a show about people being strategic and using their brain to win a game of social deception. And the other is basically a boring popularity contest where people don't want to ruffle feathers. Um, I, I think for a while it was thought that Survivor would be sort of like MTV's The Real World on an Island. I think that maybe that was Mark Burnett's uh, best case scenario for the early seasons of Survivor. But eventually both games evolved because they had to. It would be very boring to just watch strangers interact ad infinitum with no real purpose for their being there other than the the novelty which had long since worn off and so as these games survivor especially because i'm more familiar with it have evolved more to the point of social strategy and there being specific game mechanics that player can players can master it, it has become a set game and i think it's drifted farther and farther away from that initial reality premise to become more and more of a straight up game show with social elements and i'm not complaining about that at all like i said i think that just kind of doing season one of survivor 40 times would have only lasted like six times at most you know, it would have been canceled <laughs> um but i do think there's some interesting implications because people still talk about Survivor as if it's this great social experiment, as if there are these deep life lessons that we can learn from the show. And I, I want to reaffirm again, I love this show. I think Survivor may be the greatest multiplayer game ever invented. It is fascinating to watch and I would love to play it sometime. Um, but I think that it is just inaccurate to say that it is any sort of reflection on life or the quote-unquote real world Mm. and and i'm working on this theory and i think that there's two main reasons that i can observe right now why you shouldn't try to draw big social implications from survivor and they're both related to the artificial mechanisms of the game that someone created so let me explain the first thing is that within the game of Survivor, every move is zero-sum. You cannot advance unless someone else falls behind. And in fact, it is written into the rules that if you attempt to conspire to split prize money, you are automatically disqualified. So this makes it so that every single season of Survivor has one winner and cooperation is not incentivized unless 
it will benefit you as an individual. And again, this is a great game mechanic because competition is more fun to watch than cooperation. Right. But in the real world, very few interactions are truly zero sum. Many interactions are positive sum. I believe that Survivor had to create the rule against splitting prize money because they understood, the producers understood that this would be an attractive option to at least some players. I'm not saying that some seasons wouldn't end with one enterprising individual taking the entire pot for themselves, but I think you would really see the collaboration start to take place much more, but it is banned by a construction of the producers. So that's the first reason why I think that survivors should not be confused for real life is the inherent lack of positive sum interactions that does not exist in the real world. <laughs> the new the new critique of media. How do you portray interactions between people in a game theoretic sense? How are you going about this? <laughs> there you go. Exp- expand well, I mean, you just you just you're just thinking of this there. for the first time, but you have to offer the thesis. Ah, yes, you see, <laughs> this was at this was all a ploy. This is actually what I wanted to talk about today. Um, no, I mean, it's just it's just interesting. Like, if you were to say, um, like, not let your kids watch something, and then another person asks, like, hey, why don't you let your kids watch this? And it's like, oh, well, they portray human action you know, interaction in a zero sum manner. And I will not stand for that. Like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, just, yeah, no, I guess. (laughs) I mean, it makes sense, Um, but it's funny. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, and again, I don't think that makes it a bad show. It makes it a better show that it's this way, but it also makes it farther removed from that reality sense. And it makes it farther away from real life. And I think that's something that people should acknowledge that is often not acknowledged. So the second reason why I think that it's fundamentally flawed to try to draw conclusions about human nature or the real world from Survivor is because Survivor ends after 39 days. Most interactions in life do not have a predetermined end time. Some do, Mm -hmm. you know, and this is kind of where we get into like prisoner dilemma territory where if you know an interaction is ending, you're more likely to be uncooperative and act selfishly. But a lot of times you don't. So in Survivor, you may lie to someone's face and vote them out and stab them in the back because you know once they're gone, you don't have to deal with them. In the real world, there's almost always a day 40. If you had to play Survivor and backstab and lie, and then after the game was over on day 39, you had to start again with the same group of people, you would have to behave differently because you would know that the people who you betrayed are still in the game and they still have an influence over you. And that is the scenario that is much more realistic to life you can Mm -hmm. screw people over and you can lie and deceive but you can't assume that those people have no way of harming you and so again the incentives for behavior are great for a game it's fun to watch people get blindsided and you know have to have their whole strategic game blown up but it's just there's nothing in the real world that 
puts you in a confined space and says, get what's yours for this short amount of time, and there will be no repercussions outside of that frame. I mean, that's kind of why, uh, you know, it's almost like the framework of why people will go and go to like a summer camp and be different people because they don't have, you know, they can just be that person for the week or two that they're doing summer camp. Yeah. And, you know, they're never probably going to see those people again or outside the context of summer camp. So, eh, you know, go be a baller. But um, yeah. it. It, it is really game theory. Um, you know, th- there are words for it. There, there are finite games. And then um, sometimes they'll be called infinite games, sometimes extended games. Um, but, you know, like a baseball organization plays both finite and infinite games. You know, they're, you know, a, a baseball organization plays at the individual, you know, the level of, a singular baseball game or even, you know, just a singular at bat, um, you know, each pitch, you know, they're playing a specific game there, but then they're also playing the game of wanting to be a competitive, viable team 10 years down the road. Mm-hmm. And those things are different games. Um, so while survivor, you know, has a lot of, you know, finite game, it, it is finite, you know, you're not, you're not playing over the, you know, a super longevity, you know, 39 days is a lot for a TV, you know, <laughs> show yeah. appearance. But, um, you know, as far as life goes, that's quite kept off. I mean, it, it kind of books ends to that, that like UBI conversation we had, the Sacramento experiment where Stockton, it, but yeah. Stockton. Yeah. Um, where it was for two years where, you know, if you get a little bit of extra money guaranteed to you for two years, you're going to act differently than if you knew that you were going to get that extra money every day, you know, every uh, week or month for the rest of your life. Absolutely. It's a good connection. Good parallel. Yeah. Yeah. Infinite and finite games are everywhere. So um, play so both. So there you go. <laughs> we, uh, we we had a, a, an Evan topic about a show he likes and we got it looped into joe's economic knowledge so yeah boom i'm i'm satisfied i love it in love survivor great game don't mistake how someone plays survivor or anything that happens on survivor for what goes on outside of the game well yeah i mean that's that's just reality tv in general like you know i i don't have bones to pick but it's like um I remember hearing stories from like the early days of figuring out reality television and they would try certain subjects, but they, um, you know, they, you know, the, the subjects wouldn't let them like gin up, uh, controversy or anything. So (laughs) there just wasn't really a show. Yeah. Um, So that's the thing I'm going through season one of big brother and I'm not very far in it. So this is not very much spoilers for season one of big brother, but so the, the way that the original season of big brother worked is that there were 10 house guests and every two weeks they would nominate two of them. And then the nation would vote one of them out of the house. And in the first week, this guy, caused a bunch of problems. It was later revealed that he was actually a member of the new black Panther party Mm. who was on the show just to like stir shit. Um, And, you know, he was, he was really brash and 
um, disrespectful. Not that that necessarily had to do with him being a Black Panther, but it, I, I think it's interesting that a guy like that got on to CBS in 2000 is more of my point there. Right. Um, but, but so this guy was just a total ass. And, you know, obviously everyone could tell that he was an ass, but everyone else was just trying to get along and live together. But obviously he was nominated to be one of the first to go. And then America voted him out first. And so that's the point where I'm at. This guy, uh, Will Mega, has just been evicted from the Big Brother house. And I don't know what the fuck this show is going to be for the next like 56 episodes that I still uh-huh. have of this first season. Like, <laughs> what are they going to do? And again, I get it. He, he was a total jackass and everyone wanted him gone. But then what's the show? Right. Just some people hanging out. Yeah. And, you know, I don't really like Seinfeld, so it doesn't appeal to me. No, man. Do you do 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 do. Um, it's it's weird how um, I don't know. The, the idea of reality television was so much more like I feel like explicitly talked about when we were like in. I don't know, middle school, high school, because that was like still kind of in its early days and people could felt like they could have like gripes with it or it was more in the zeitgeist to criticize. Whereas now reality TV is just it's just another form of TV with (laughs) no inherent, you know, social value or anything. I think I think back then people were just kind of upset that you know, it was just every channel was just moving to reality TV because it was cheap and also like engaging in the kind of, I don't know, polarizing kind of ways that we know about now, you know, it's conflict and it breeds engagement. Well, I I think that there's a couple of, I guess, more substantive critiques of reality TV that I sort of ascribe to Uh, And I think that's why I really respond to the competition based ones, because it's so transparently a game. But uh, number one is that, you know, there's kind of this idea that um, reality TV lives on drama. So it incentivizes bad behavior and almost normalizes that bad behavior. You know, it's just seen as Mm -hmm. funny to be. Uh, a jackass and you know that's how you're gonna get on tv and everyone's gonna respect you for that so i i I think that there's some truth to that and then the other part is um for a subset of the population and and i think maybe where you're going and, and you probably agree with this the subset of the population who believes that it's really reality is dwindling vastly by the day almost you know oh yeah um but i think for a while there people were drawing or, or claiming to draw conclusions about human nature from these artificially constructed scenarios that were completely untrue to life. And yeah. when you are basing your assumptions about reality on faulty constructions of reality, like this is the allegory of the cave, right? Like yeah. um, you have to be able to see things for what they are, not the weird shadows on the wall. And so um, I, I think when reality TV was was newer, there was a real fear that people were internalizing fundamentally incorrect assumptions about humanity and ones that might have some negative implications. Yeah, they, instead of just 
taking that information and believing that's how humanity works. They just took that information, realized that's how content work, and they all went and made TikToks and Twitters and Instagrams. Yes, vastly different landscape now than in 2000. I, um, I mean, it, it's just weird in, in this time, you know, where we are now, reality TV is like almost antiquated. Um, Like, I don't know, it, it just seems like through different mediums we're always like trying to reach some new level of authenticity and for a while reality tv was seen as a window into that but now you know it's it's hard to compete when people just i don't know something happens and they just turn on their phones and you know do a a selfie video of whatever the fuck's going on I think the future of content is a chip implanted in my brain that broadcasts my thoughts out involuntarily to (laughs) to anyone who tunes in like like a constant Truman show. But it's in my brain now are only some people broadcasting or is everybody broadcasting only some people. Okay, because then it was like, well, if everybody's broadcasting, like... Then it's like, no one's broadcasting. Well, yeah, how do you get into that loop? Like, do you just join into somebody's broadcast and they're just listening to someone else who's enjoying (laughs) someone else's broadcast, who's listening in on someone else's broadcast? (laughs) No, no, because there's still, like, shows, so, like, they can get renewed and canceled, but it's just that they're... The locus (laughs) of the show is within a mind, so instead of a sitcom called Seinfeld, you would just you know, you would go to Seinfeld and just think, you know, we want your mind for a month. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll order we'll, we'll order 13 weeks of your mind. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? That, like this, this is this is going to come true. I have a feeling. <laughs> uh, you know, we we have it. Well, knowing our luck. We'll we'll see a news post tomorrow about this becoming a reality. <laughs> oh, we truly will. Yeah, we'll we'll be very prescient. Only us knowing it. Yeah, <laughs> um, no one will believe us. Prescient a minute before. So <laughs> it's like that SNL sketch where Christopher Walken plays the trivial psychic like when he touches someone he can see an event from their future but only one that um is irrelevant mm-hmm. like um th- there's this woman and and uh he touches her and he's like oh gosh your son he's at home and she's like yeah is he gonna be okay and then she's like oh no you you just you just waxed your floor didn't you and so she's all scared she's like oh no is he gonna slip on the floor and die and he goes no, but his shoes are all dirty. He's going to ruin your nice floor. <laughs> that's us. Yeah, that's us. Where our realities are going to ruin your floors. Wow, that was not great. Um, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm overly reliant on references today, so yeah. we, we can neither of us hide. Okay, I, I'll <laughs> go hide. But wait, Joe, you can't hide. What? Why not, Evan? I want to know what you want to talk about. <laughs> oh, what do I want to talk about? I want to talk about public policy. Damn it! This is all I ever want to talk about. Why yeah, it's don't like more 90% people talk of the show? 
Why don't people talk about this with me in real life? Why I aren't they people? would if you opened up. I don't know. It just kind of, it's just I'm talking at people and they go, hmm, interesting. But anyway, <laughs> um, so I wanted to talk about this. Um, you know, it's it's not quite a white paper, uh, you know, like an academic white paper. It's more of a position paper. Um, his name's Alan Levy and it's called, So You Want to Do an Infrastructure Package. In, uh, you know, infrastructure week has finally come. Uh, the Biden administration is talking about its next, next major legislative move being a uh, infrastructure package, which, uh, you know, a lot of experts say the United States, you know, badly needs where we are kind of falling behind on infrastructure and all this kind of stuff. But the, the thrust of this position paper is that in the United States, the cost of building and maintaining infrastructure is extremely high. Like, as a whole, the United States is an outlier on basically every form of infrastructure uh, building costs. Like triple and, the cost of European oh, nations. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so, like, the, the banner, you know... <clears throat> um, you know, statistic is that in the New York City, it costs about a billion dollars per kilometer to build a subway line, whereas the world average is 250 million per kilometer. And the, it, it's just crazy how much more expensive, you know, this follows a common theme of, um, a lot of times in America in a, you know, kind of weird quest to maybe make things cheaper, we end up making things so much more expensive. Um, so, and this paper goes into a bit of, uh, like what's just going on. Like, you know, in some ways, you know, you would hear that New York, it costs four times more than the world average to build a subway tunnel. And you would start to go into, well, we're a rich nation and, you know, things cost more money here or something vague about the unions, which is definitely a problem. But, um, you know, there isn't just there it specifically laid out in the paper that there is no um, correlation between GDP per capita and cost of infrastructure projects. We're just an outlier on our own, you know. It's not, you know, they hate us because they ain't us. We're, we're just us, you know. <laughs> we're, the other thing, just... too, that I, I thought was interesting is that geography didn't even matter. You know, there's there's no like you could say like, oh, well, there's parts of the United States where it's hard to drill and build rails. Or you could say such... at like New York, it's like, oh, it's kind of a swampy area. You know, the it has a high uh, water ceiling or something like that. Yeah, but. In different parts of the United States, the costs are pretty comparable no matter the terrain, and places with similar terrain in other countries are still much cheaper. So it's really, like Joe said, it's not the fact that the U.S. is a rich nation. It's not anything geographically. It's just us. Yeah. Well, and um, it's it part of it seems to be borne out through the process. Like, like I said before, 
the process of these projects happening seems to be construed from a as few dollars upfront cost but then it ends up not being any cheaper. So so what what do I mean by that? So one thing that happens is that um, the way bidding for these infrastructure work projects, you know, the the government just doesn't have a construction company laying around to do projects. Like some, you know, they have some crews and stuff and, you know, different uh, levels of government have different things, but just generally, if you do an infrastructure project, you're going to be contracting out private companies to do it and oversee the construction of it for the most part. So what ends up happening is the United States ends up just kind of deferring a lot to those people where the only thing that is negotiated on is the price of the project. And if it kind of meets some sort of you know, minimum standard of what the project is um, and, you know, conforms to all the laws. You just kind of, you know, put in a bid for a contract and whoever puts in the lowest bid ends up getting it, which is different from how a lot of different nations do it. I mean, part of one of uh, there are two other uh, specters or uh, pillars that you can evaluate uh, an infrastructure building project on, which is there's uh, the technical level where are they doing it in a technically sound manner and do they have all their estimates in order and all that kind of stuff? You know, do they, are all their I's and T's dotted and crossed respectively or are they just kind of putting up a vague bid together? Um, and then the other one is speed, which I swear in United States infrastructure projects, it's like nobody even cares about it. Like road, you know, this is a different thing, but like road maintenance crews just work for like eight hours during the day. Why aren't they out there 24 seven? Like a lot of European countries do, you know, because time is money. But what ends up happening is, is that these, uh, these governments end up trying to do these projects. They only bid based on, um, Cost because they don't have the uh, capacity, you know, they don't have the staff members to be able to evaluate these projects from a technical standpoint, which requires engineers to be on the payroll of the government, where oftentimes they'll only hire engineers as things ramp up and then fire them as immediately as it's done. Whereas if you had a staff full of them all the time, they could be evaluating projects, they could be uh, looking over them more carefully and be able to better manage and oversee projects so that overruns don't happen and that they happen in a timely manner according to the specifications that are laid out. And that just doesn't seem to happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there, oh, what was it? There, It's just, I mean, there's also some cases where uh, like United States has... Um, overly burdensome regulations in some areas of our infrastructure. Um, one uh, part of this paper pointed out that a lot of things are like oftentimes over engineered for what they need to do. Um, this was not in the paper, but um, I've heard people talk about how trains in the United States are cost like the train cars themselves oftentimes. And this is passenger 
train cars often cost a whole lot more than they would in European countries because uh, the United States model for what constitutes a safe car, a safe train car is basically a safe on wheels rolling down the tracks, whereas <laughs> other countries, they have uh, less burdensome regulations and they are able to be produced for cheaper, but we aren't able to take advantage of those other rail manufacturers and the cheaper techniques because we have an overly burdensome rules about for what train cars are that is trapped in a, a past mode of understanding about what creates safety. So all of this is to say that building, you know, we need to build out our infrastructure. We need to update it. You know, I think I went on a little spiel either last week or two weeks ago by why that's good. Um, it is good, but also we just, we need to get a hold of our costs, man. Like uh, poorer countries are able to do similar or even better infrastructures projects for way less and you know if you i mean this is crazy if you save money doing things then you're able to do more things with that money well i know it's i know it's crazy like maybe instead of just building one kilometer of subway for the same amount of money maybe you could get three and that would just be wild you could build a whole lot more subways but it you know just it, everything is so expensive. Yeah, but, and, but good luck getting people to convert to the metric system. Oh no. <laughs> the, <laughs> yeah. What's what's the rate per mile? <laughs> yeah. Come on, Joe. These yeah, are the yeah. questions that people are asking. Yeah, yeah. If you do it in miles, is it as big of a difference? <laughs> so it I I you know I I was kind of before I went into this I was hoping this paper was going to be a little bit more scientific and they alluded to that there is a full analysis coming hopefully someday soon in the full like real reasons why American infrastructure costs so more so much more because this is actually an under-researched uh topic and we don't have like the like there isn't a neat Vox explainer about this because the academic consensus doesn't really exist. Like there's a bunch of theories and it's one of those things where it's a complicated thing. So, you know, maybe some of the parts are right, but we don't just comprehensively know. But, you know, as a someone who I don't know, I like effective state capacity I would like to make sure my tax dollars are due. Like I want both my tax dollars to be doing those things, but I want them also to be spent effectively. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not just trying to throw it all to the wind for the fuck of it. Um, you got anything? Yeah, I do. Um, so something I was thinking about while reading this paper and then also, reading or not reading gosh darn it listening to your uh your your solid summary of it is that i think that what is really at stake here and this can be done this can be said of safety regulations or environmental regulations i know the paper talked at, at length about environmental regulatory process and how that's been abused to infinitely veto infrastructure projects but what, what the question we're really asking is how safe is safe enough? You know, yeah. 
at at what point do we say yes x train car design is going to lead to y more deaths but the cheaper construction is going to you know indirectly go through all these channels and create jobs and help societal function which raises life expectancy da, 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 da. and it's all this balancing act made of so many complex variables that basically every nation just kind of has to guess and yeah. what the authors of this paper conclude is that um a lot of times our guesses we might aren't be the best yeah our guesses might be a little bit too cautious and I know that that's that's a little bit counterintuitive to hear. Like, how how can safety be a bad thing? But like I said, there's actually a really complex impact calculus that goes into it. Um, one thing that I, I liked from the paper, though, um, and Joe, you you should put the the paper in show notes if people yeah. want to read it. Um, was the idea that the main issue might not even be our safety regulations? You know existentially but the mm. fact that we have it litigated through the court system yeah. and so it can take for fucking ever just to resolve the dispute over an environmental impact statement or over a uh, historic land use thing they, they gave the example of italy which still values environmental safety and which still makes concessions for historic buildings and landmarks but it's not done within the context of the u.s adversarial legal system it's just done bureaucratically there's an office that basically makes the decisions about when infrastructure projects can begin and when they can't and that just makes things run so much more smoothly right whereas in the united states model it's like the government is like hey we're gonna do a project and then some interest comes and be like uh uh we're going to fight this out and then they fight it out and it takes so fucking long and then it finally gets approval and then there are cost overages because the project was priced out for when it was originally passed and then you know it's 7 years later and things cost more and it's no longer in a recession and blah 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 blah, blah. Mm -hmm. um but i you know it's kind of two points one um on the safety regulations, like the, it, it's not even necessarily the dichotomy that it's a, like how much unsafety do you believe in where it's more so that the way the, like in some sectors of the United States regulation of infrastructure and like transportation is that they have regulations under the guise of safety that don't necessarily meter out a more safe outcome. They're just more burdensome. Um, like the train cars, there is no clear distinction that the bank safe train cars that the United States have are in any way safer than, I don't know, the, <laughs> the more shed on wheels. I don't even, I don't, that's not a comparison, but just like the rail cars of Europe. Like there, there is no real, uh, like nobody's saying that the United States model is way safer. Um, so it's justified. It's just kind of like, why are we doing this? You know, it's about the same either way. So why are we having all this extra regulation? But then the second point is, is that, you know, I can kind of understand like, <laughs> again, this, 
this whole litigation thing seems to be something that's borne out through not really caring. So just kind of like setting up a system that requires the least amount of time to set up a system. Like there is definitely a strong tradition in the past of the United States where the government and companies in general were very blase about protecting like anything. Um, you know, whether it be, some, you know, the environment, whether it be a historical landmark, you know, there, there is this kind of old, you know, way of thinking about land and projects where, you know, it's like, if you own the land, you could do whatever you want. Whereas this new idea is, is that other people can have lay claims to this stuff. So in Italy, you know, there, it's a big part of the culture that they definitely believe in these landmarks. I mean, it's a real national treasure. It's a point of pride. People will watch out for them, whereas there isn't as much trust that a government bureaucracy in the United States would be as, um, you know, look out for those local interests and look out for those like whatever landmarks or environmental things, you know, instead just trying to get the project done. So instead of creating an in-house process that would take, you know, you know, mean actually interfacing with the problem and, you know, taking that as a serious thing that has to be considered by the government, it ends up getting shifted to the courts where it kind of incentivizes different governments to kind of just go along with the projects, you know, decide them down. And then for um, outside uh, litigators to come and do a process of whether this is OK or in accordance to historic structures or the environment Whereas, you know, it's just save a whole lot of time and money to do it in house, but that would require upfront costs, which we're not necessarily willing to go along with. Yeah, but then it's kind of like what you were talking about earlier is that this aversion to upfront costs just creates more work and bullshit later. So, for example, one of the things that I, I was really struck by in this paper is the development of the environmental impact statement. So in the 70s, people who wanted to do big construction projects were for the first time required to write environmental impact statements, which would basically give an overview of how the construction would impact the natural environment and try to account for all of the ripple effects that they could reasonably see. And when it was instituted in the early 70s, it was expected that environmental impact statements would be about 10 pages long. Nowadays, with all of the appendices and footnotes and, you know, just the increased volume of what's expected in an environmental impact statement, these things run a thousand pages or more. We've seen a hundredfold increase in the, the size of environmental impact statements. And, you know, that necessarily slows things down. Someone has to be paid to do the analysis and write the report, and then other people have to spend the time to read the report and then duke it out yep. in court. And it just, on a systemic level, absorbs so much more time and money. And so then the critical question becomes, is all of this time and money actually producing marginal benefits to environmental quality or safety or whatever the benchmark you want to use is? And I think what uh, this paper is arguing is that the answer is no. <laughs> yeah. And, and this isn't even from like a, I don't know, more conservative libertarian critique. It's just like, 
hey, we want to do infrastructure. We want to do it right. Um, is this the right way to go about it? And it just kind of increasingly seems to be that the answer is not quite. Um, well, you know, Joe, the real question is we, we can talk about infrastructure all we want. How are we going to get it passed unless we abolish the filibuster? Ah. And this is when you say you can put it in budget reconciliation. And I'm like, ah, I've been vanquished. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one thing that's not about the filibuster. Yeah. Um, what was it? But yeah, like, I feel like this follows a general path for so many things in the United States, at least our governmental systems, where we oftentimes don't want to put forward the upfront cost of preparing for something and dealing with something. So we just kind of wait until it happens. And then when it does happen, the costs end up being so much more than if we had just long term paid into a smaller system. And, you know, it caused so much more confusion, causes so much uncertainty. But then there's still just this aversion to like an upfront cost. Like, and in this, you know, scenario, it's the upfront cost of, you know, states and localities hiring on more engineers to be able to better adequately oversee the projects that are going on in the state instead of just kind of, you know, kind of trusting that the contractors are going through with it. It's also making sure that, you know, we have a bureaucracy that can meter out the, uh, you know, the environmental impacts and the, you know, deference to local issues and, you know, landmarks and not have that go through the courts where it takes years and years and years. Um, that'd be a much easier system. Like, that was one thing in the report. It was like, it seemed like Italy had an easier time building a goddamn subway station next to the Coliseum than New York City does on just any given street. <laughs> and which is ridiculous. Like, you know, you would think that building a subway station or subway line next to the Coliseum in Rome, an ancient historical site. It, it would, you know, have greater costs than the Second Avenue subway line in New York. <laughs> but it turns out the New York one is more expensive. And, um, and you know, it, it's also this, like, deference to um, uh, disruption. Like, you know, it was, it was also talking about, like, um, you know, it'd be cheaper to build subway tunnels if they just dug up the whole street in that area and, you know, built it in and it'd be easier and more time effective. But instead, what they do is they go at all underneath to, you know, it, not face political ramifications for shutting down a street for a while. But then it just takes so long and so much money or or it's like, um, you know, it's like highway. <laughs> like I just highway maintenance that's that's one of those things you see all the time or at least i see more visibly um out in the world and it's like man you know you could fix redo this highway if you real fast if you had crews out there 24 7 and you could knock it out in a couple weeks whereas it takes like a month or so to redo a stretch of road and the traffic patterns are are changing all the time and you're coming in and out and 
know, there's this uncertainty and there's slowdowns and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, time is money, which is also just a big part of it. And, you know, spending so much time means end up spending so much more money. And, but yeah, so the point was that this is like a general thing. Like we also have this in healthcare where we, we, instead of having a system that just provides everyone with healthcare up front, we, 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 uh, we deal with this dual system of not believing in universally providing people with health care, but then also believing that someone should not be denied health care because of the cost, leading to this situation where people will only go in, you know, some people of certain, um, you know, uh, certain income brackets and hell, even people who have relatively cheap insurance only end up going to the the hospital and getting medical medical care when it's most necessary, you know, the the point when it's their bodies have essentially broke. Yes. And that is way more expensive than if you were to just do it kind of gradually over time and we gave people direct access to healthcare as, you know, a direct provision. But no. So we're we're living in this scenario again where instead of providing the money up front and being prepared for these things, we just kind of wait until they happen, do it by the seat of our pants, and it ends up costing more money, more time, and is less predictable and increases uncertainty. Yeah, you know, um, I think maybe the un, unspoken thing there is somebody profits off of it, you know? there's There's maybe someone in the system who likes that the things become more expensive because then they end up richer and so you know i'll throw that out there i don't have that developed but i'll throw it out there i mean somebody's making money off of it yeah i mean um i mean sometimes unions do it i mean it's weird how unions exist in the united states where like if you um i mean this may be Oh no, who knows? Maybe a bad sound bite for me later down the road. But um so like in Germany, you know, they all most most workers are unionized and it's sectoral I don't know if they have sectoral bargaining, which means like, you know, all the you know, all the factory workers would be in a union instead of just a union shop at one location. But you know, they have to have make sure that um you know, uh, the corporate boards of corporations in Germany, half of the people have to be representatives from labor. And what ends up happening is that since labor is so much more entwined with the dealings of the businesses and represented it at that level, they have a much better working relationship. And, um, you know, they, they'll, uh, you know, they're, they're more likely, to go along with it, which is better for the company health as a whole, more so over just, you know, it, it's playing the infinite game of the company <laughs> instead of playing there the finite is. game. Whereas a lot of American unions, there is, it, it, it seems to be, I don't know if this is the case, it seems to be that there's a more antagonistic level of it where it's seen as a zero-sum game where, we want the other to lose and and uh, we're going to try and get our best fill. And that's coming from both sides. And um, there isn't this 
type of cooperation where both are seen invested as invested in getting things done. And there's just this kind of playing a finite game of, well, we want our co-pays to be $10 less and we're going to do a walkout if we don't get that or something like that. Now that may be a mischaracterization, but yeah. Well, I mean, that's the inevitable result of bifurcating workers from upper level management. You know, we're, we're learning more and more about how much wages in this country are not a result of productivity, but as a result of power. And so if unions are able to amass power through collective bargaining to raise wages or get benefits that may or may not be commensurate with their productivity, they have to. At least that's my view. They have to. Um, But I would absolutely support a German-style system where the workers and the companies are more intertwined so that the workers have to think about the health of the company and the companies have to think about the health of their workers. I think that clearly that system works very well for a lot of people. And, uh, you know, (laughs) it seems like a no brainer. A lot, a lot, a lot of lefties are advocating that Michael Moore, that's one of his ideas and where to invade next. So Michael Moore, I am disappointed at how close I look to Michael Moore when I a don't have a haircut and b wear a baseball cap. <laughs> it's it's not good. There's a character in American Dad that uh, I think it's like the mayor of Langley Falls, and he looks a lot like Michael Moore. And I and every time I'm like, isn't Michael Moore the mayor of Langley Falls? And it's like that's not even a joke. It just just looks like him to me. But I feel like there was something that, I don't know, happened in the last few months that Michael Moore was for or said, and I really disagreed with it, but I can't remember. So Eh, uh, easy come, easy go. Yeah, he he does a lot of stuff. He's out there. He's uh, I mean, maybe it was just that Onion article. Um, (laughs) What was it? Um, Oh, yeah. Michael Moore tries to interview Asian carp in pond. <laughs> Why are you respond? Why are you destroying our ecosystem? You have no answers. Why are you swimming away from me? <laughs> sir? sir, sir, <laughs> sir. Um, but yeah, so, um, the, the path to making a more effective government capacity to affect change in our societies and create a better society is to, at least in the Joe Hicks view, to do the little upfront cost to be prepared for things and then just to be able to more effectively be able to do them. Um, <laughs> like, I mean, shit. Like, if we were able to get our our infrastructures costs you know you would think in the richest country in the world where um you know all this is happening we would get rich for a reason and that's because we are doing things smart (laughs) um (laughs) you know government wise but just not you know we're we're a country that is very resource rich and um and and i and i can't help but wonder if part of that's like why, like we've never had to scrimp and save and, you know, be, be frugal on building our highways. So we're not, um, mm. but that's just, you know, 
but again, or, or, you know, it's like the healthcare thing, you know, it's like, fuck the government spends the, the U S federal government spends more money on healthcare per capita than England does. And England covers everybody. Whereas the United States only care covers the people on Medicaid and Medicare. Whereas we have this whole other expenditure on healthcare that is almost the same as the public expenditure that's on private healthcare. It's just, I don't know. We, we just got to get some costs under the control, guys. Like, think about how much more we would be able to do as a society if, you know, we were just able to get these costs under control. Yeah. And not, and not just by cutting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to get to the fundamental root of what is, uh, you know, the, what's the wellspring for all of these inefficiencies and trimming. You know, it's probably just a lot of inattention and kind of non, not uh, the gatekeepers of expertise, maybe like, like this kind of goes to the thing where if you don't have an adequate staff of like engineers and project managers, the state doesn't have a real benchmark of to how to evaluate these projects and then the contractors just kind of get to do whatever. And then when there is, even when there is a challenge, again, the, the government isn't quite able to match in kind, you know, able to fight back as much. Um, or pushback, I guess, would be more adequate of what I want to convey. But so mm-hmm. it's just um, hopefully we get some infrastructure and we uh, are able to do it more effectively. But reform is hard. Especially like uh, talking earlier, you know, it's it's easier to pass things through the budget than to uh, change the actual rules. So, yeah. And wouldn't it make sense to be the other way? But, well, I, I don't believe it should be the other way, but that's not something I'm advocating. <laughs> well, who's to say? Who's to say? Where to say? Um, Sometimes we are. Yeah. Well, Evan, do you got anything else to say? No, no, I think it's uh, it's a good good bow on it. Let's yeah, let's try to figure things out. Yeah, so uh, I think that's it for this episode. We uh, thank everybody for listening. Uh, we once again thank Anthony Hish for the music, as always. But uh, my name's Joe Hicks, and mine's Evan Kelly, and we hope that you've been adequately informed.